Good morning. Good to see all of you. So, uh, so thankful to be here and grateful to have the opportunity to open up God's Word with you this morning. Would you pray with me? Uh, gracious Heavenly Father, God, we are grateful for the truth of your Word. God, that it stands alone. God, that I'm not needed uh, to, um, to make it true, to make it any more applicable, to make it, uh, give it any more meaning. Uh, God, but uh, that that only comes from the truth of the words written in this book. God, I just ask this morning, God, that you would, um, you would speak that through me. God, humble me. God, make your name great uh, through the power of your word, not the power of my words. And God, I just know, um, God, that um, God, you have an intention for every person in this room this morning, myself included. God, that you would just use that. God, open our hearts and our minds to hear clearly your word. God, that you would transform our hearts and minds to the likeness of your son, Jesus. God, we're thankful for his shed blood on the cross. God, his gift of salvation to us and the grace that we receive every single day so abundantly. God, we love you and we praise your name. Amen. Well, good morning. So again, so thankful to be here uh, opening up God's word with you. Um, some of you may know that I spent um, part of my school age years growing up overseas. Um, I got to experience some pretty incredible things um, that I know um, many people only get to dream of. Um, some, some really cool experiences, but um, I, I was well-loved by my parents. I grew up in a good home. I had lots of friends. Um, I could even switch from an American accent to a British accent, the drop of a hat. It's pretty cool. Um, can't do that anymore, um, unfortunately. Um, but, but when my family moved back to the States in 2000, been here for about 20 years, uh, it was total culture shock for me. I didn't even know it was culture shock at the time. It was total culture shock for me as I look back. As I made new friends and I got involved in sports and in school, I really struggled with my identity. I didn't fit in. I had, um, I had listened to the Spice Girls while everyone else in America listened to Eminem. I had a comb over and every other kid my age in America had frosted tips. I, I, uh, I became so obsessed with fitting in, with looking like everybody else around me, being liked by others, that I would say and do anything to keep up. I remember telling all my friends that I listened to music that I had literally never heard of. And yes, I even got my tips frosted. I wanted to do anything I could to appear to be someone that I wasn't. Now, I didn't have a relationship with Jesus at this point. I grew up in the Catholic Church, pretty loose understanding of who Jesus was. Um, I didn't know the gospel, and I certainly didn't have a relationship with Jesus. My faith and hope wasn't in him. My identity and my hope were completely wrapped up in me and how people saw me. Have you ever been in a similar place? Are you there now? Maybe you don't know Jesus, like I didn't, and you're looking for ways to stand out or fit in. Maybe you do know Jesus, but you're fighting the battle of living for self. Did the decisions you made yesterday revolve around you? Did the things that you say or did even this morning make you look better than you actually are? Who are you living for this morning? Fast forward a couple of years to high school when I heard and responded to the gospel um, at Broomfield Community Church at a youth group event on, um, on New Year's Eve. Um, while I was immediately made new in Christ, uh, my words and my actions were slow, were slow change. They were slow to follow. 
I was then, and I still am now, a person in process. Despite me, though, grace radically altered my identity and my hope. Let's take just a, a quick minute, minute just to remember um, over the last uh, few weeks what we've heard so far in Paul's letter to Titus. A few weeks ago, David Morgan helped us see in this letter to Titus how Paul's identity was in living his life by faith, which is gifted by God through grace. Paul's identity was lived out. It was obvious in his actions and in his words by his faith in Jesus, which was rooted in the knowledge of the truth of the gospel. We also saw that Paul's hope was not in what he did. His hope was in eternity future and knowing God now in a restored relationship because of Jesus' death on the cross. We can rest now in this identity and hope. We also heard from Mike Delaney about appointing elders in the church who lead by example and who protect the truth. These are men who are incapable on their own who fight the battle of the flesh just like you and I do. But empowered by grace, they are men who through their conduct, their character, and their competence lead by example. Their shepherding of the flock and protecting of the truth confronts error and restores the wayward so that the people of God may be ready for every good work. And last week, we heard from Ben Alexander about how the people of God, older men, older women, Younger men, younger women, are to live in thought and in deed so that Christ may be presented to the world. So grateful for the messages these brothers brought of encouragement to me. Hopefully it was to you as well. This morning, we're going to be finishing up this series, as John mentioned, a pure church with the final chapter in Paul's letter to Titus. As we've learned, the church in Crete is out of order. And there are many who are insubordinate. There's false teaching that needs to be silenced. There's lack of leadership, immature faith that's showing itself in a lack of good works. And there's divisiveness. Cretans were known for their immorality, and the state of the church conformed to the culture in Crete. It just fit right in. We aren't any different right here in Windsor, Colorado. We are people made in God's image, who out of our former identity, we can be lacking in love or disobedient, maybe sometimes foolish or completely incapable of pleasing God and loving others. But the call of the believer to live upright and godly lives is not dismissed just because it doesn't fit with our culture. When we live for God, joyful obedience defines us. Living as Christians, we live counterculturally. Sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under the law, but under grace. The call is obedience. Obedience in response to what our Savior did, and what the Holy Spirit enables us to do today. So, what is godliness to look like in the church? And what is its source? What is godliness to look like in the church? And what is its source? We're going to see from God's word today through Paul that grace is the source for living as the people of God. Grace is the source, the source that empowers us and that motivates us to joyfully obey how he has called us to live. Paul David Tripp defines grace this way. 
Grace offers me what I did not earn and forgives me for the wrongs I've actually done. Anytime we desire in word, thought, or action to do what pleases God, we are being rescued, transformed, and empowered by his grace. In our passage today, we're going to see evidence that grace purifies the people of God to do three things. Grace purifies the people of God to relinquish ourselves, to render good works, and to renounce ungodliness. Relinquish ourselves, render good works, and renounce ungodliness. As we saw last week, chapter 2 ends with a powerful exhortation, a reminder of the gospel truth, and we see that in verses 11 through 14. It says there, the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, who are zealous for good works. We are humbly dependent upon God's grace to think, say, or do anything good. We pick up our text today, as Heidi read, in chapter 2, verse 15. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Paul instructs Titus to declare these things, to declare that grace is here. And it's here through our Savior Jesus, who himself gave himself for us, that we may live it for him. Titus is to unashamedly share these things with the churches in Crete. Paul had been given authority by God to preach, and he's passing that same authority on to Titus and the elders that Titus is appointing the churches in Crete. They are to exhort or encourage the people of God to live in a way that will bring God great glory. And they are to rebuke or convict through the teaching of sound doctrine so that those in the church would turn from ungodliness and turn towards the grace as the source for living, for living as people of God. Turn from ungodliness and turn towards grace as the source for living as people of God. Titus was a reputable teacher in, in the church. We see in 2 Corinthians that he showed concern for God's people in Corinth. However, his reputation hadn't earned him any special ability to exhort or rebuke. Likewise, for the leaders in the church, that ability is given by the Father, and it's given by the Father through grace and grace alone. Paul tells Titus in verse 1 through 3 in chapter 3 to remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. Titus is to remind believers of how they are to live in society in light of who they once were. The grace described in chapter 2 is the source for this living. It's what motivates and empowers us. 
verses 1 through 3 bring us to our first point today, that grace purifies the people of God to relinquish ourselves by submitting to authority, by showing humility in how we treat others, and by remembering who we once were. The civil authorities of Crete were under the largest jurisdiction of Rome. And Paul was writing at a time when Rome was not aggressively attacking the church. The Cretan churches were not facing aggressive attacks from Roman government. Regardless of that political climate, Titus was to remind the people of God to be submissive to rulers and authorities and to be obedient, to come under their rule which had been established by God. I wish we had more time today, but I don't want to um, keep you here any longer uh, than um, the hour and a half I'm already going to keep you. But um, we could get pretty deep into this passage, right? And unfortunately, because we don't have that time, um, we're going to look to God's word um, and encourage you to do the same. But Paul, in Romans 13, gives some pretty clear instruction to Christians in their relationship with governing authorities. He says the government is God's servant for the good of his people. Now we know in governments across the world, authority can become corrupt. We see explicit persecution of those who call Jesus Lord. We see people being asked to become subject to things that God's word, the divine authority, says are evil or sinful or an abomination to him. So who do we follow? We follow God. We follow God every time. And as we see elsewhere in Scripture, God is the sole and supreme authority over all the earth. He is the single greatest authority, and all authorities are instituted by him, and all authorities are subject to him. Should God's people be asked to submit to evil demands dictated by rulers and authorities, they are to, under God's authority, refrain from that sin. Regardless of your political views, regardless of your personal opinions about what local or national civil leaders are asking you to do today, unless you are being asked to do evil or commit sin, we are to relinquish ourselves and come under the authority. As Christians, our obedience is an outflow of our love for the Father and a signal to the world of our allegiance to Him. Obedience does not earn favor in God's economy. Hear me. It's not the more we obey, the more righteous we are to him, and the more more favor we receive. It doesn't work that way. It's not a cause and effect relationship like our economy. Believer, you are fully clothed in righteousness through faith in Christ, and nothing you can do will take that away from you. Church, be obedient because the blood of Christ purchased you. And that is sufficient payment for eternity. We're in a challenging political climate in America right now, to say the least, right? And whether you're Republican or Democrat, conservative or liberal, whether you think being told to wear a mask is a violation of your civil liberties, or you think it will end this pandemic, whether you think speed limits are suggestions and they only matter when you get caught, 
or whether you think it's okay to fudge on your taxes because you don't like or even agree with how the government's using your money. You, me, we, believer, are to be submissive to the local and federal, federal authorities that God has put over us. This isn't up to you. Deciding whether or not you think they are worthy of your submission is not your decision to make. And I know it's hard. You might think that there are foolish decisions being made. God never said that we had to like it. But unless you are being commanded to do something evil or something that contradicts God's instruction for us as believers, we must submit. And by God's grace, we can. His grace relinquishes us from ourselves so that we can, be, so that we can humbly submit. Now, please know that we are a church who will always be governed first and foremost by God's word. Always. Here at WCC, during this pandemic, our leaders are coming under state and local authorities to be submissive in how we hold services. We're aligning our gatherings and our processes to the safety guidelines that are required of us. And it's hard. It stinks. I, I really don't like seeing you guys all spread out. I'd much prefer us to all be together um, and have everybody here. I'd much prefer that our kids be up uh, worshiping and learning together in children's ministry. I know they would love that too. It's hard, but we must be above reproach. We must submit to authority. Grace is the source for living this way, and it purifies us to relinquish ourselves. These next five reminders in verse 2 were intended by Paul to be applied more broadly in our living as people of God, not just in our submission to authority. Verse 2 continues with, remind them to be ready for every good work. If you haven't caught the consistent charge over the last few weeks um, in, this, in this letter, you're certainly going to hear it today. It's called, uh, as this call to good works is mentioned three times in our passage today, actually. In both chapter 1, verse 16, and chapter 2, verse 14, the works of the professing Christian are an indication of our faith and a response to his love for us. This is also confirmed in Ephesians 2.10, where it says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand, that we should walk in them. While we are incapable of doing anything good outside of God's grace, we are to be ready, empowered by the Spirit of God, to do what is good for the sake of the gospel. In obedience to the two most important commands spoken by Jesus himself, right? To love the Lord your God with all your soul, with all your heart, excuse me, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. And to love your neighbor as yourself. We're to speak evil of no one and avoid quarreling. What comes out of our mouths should be true and beneficial for others, not an exaggeration or a lie. Not something that instigates conflict or puts someone down for our own benefit. We're to speak with kindness and humility towards others, being compassionate and forgiving one another, relinquishing ourselves and our natural inclination to say the worst about people. Rather than being argumentative, Christians are to be peaceable and considerate. If who you talked to was sitting across the dinner table from you, 
would they feel loved or rejected by what you say about them? Continuing in verse 2, we are to be gentle and show perfect courtesy toward all people. Now, these aren't necessarily physically expressed, but more a condition of the Christian's mind and heart. When you're in relationship with someone who might be hard for you, or there's conflict in your, um, in your marriage, or maybe your, your kids insist that they know better than you only to justify their disobedience. That doesn't happen, right? How are you responding? How are you responding? Are you responding with gentleness and meekness, initiated by the grace in you, by the power of the Spirit? I can tell you there are certainly times in my life that I'm not, that I don't respond this way, and I've been convicted by that um, in, in studying this passage over the last several weeks. As working from home is kind of drug on. I've been home since March 13th. That day will probably forever be etched in my memory, right? Um, life has, has drug on. The stress of life has started to pick back up after maybe a slow season and everything was, was shut down. Life started to pick back up, and I've been so quick to get impatient with my kids. And I have often responded harshly. Even if they are disobedient, and deserving of a consequence, I've struggled to train them with gentleness and to give them grace that I've received so abundantly. This makes me even more thankful for forgiveness and for a wife who helps me see my sin and what gentleness looks like. As people of God, we must relinquish ourselves and allow the Spirit of God to empower us with grace. This is the only means we have to show humility toward everyone. As we interact with the world and with each other, we can't possibly expect perfect harmony. Why? Because of sin, right? We're fallen, sinful humans interacting with other fallen and sinful human beings, right? What Paul says next really sets up the rest of this letter. Read with me again here in verse 3. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others, and hating one another. Coming off of reminding the Cretan believers how to live in their communities and in their churches, Paul brings another reminder to Titus, a reminder of who they once were before they were rescued by grace before they put their faith in the Savior of the world, the one and only sufficient sacrifice that pays the price for sin, to restore God's people to right relationship with him. Paul and Titus, you and I, Christian, were just like the world, just like the person riding your tail on Main Street in Windsor, just like the neighbor who has no regard for anyone around him but himself, maybe just like the person at work who you always seem to butt heads with. We were once foolish, lacking spiritual understanding. We were once disobedient and rebelled against God. And we probably didn't think twice about it. We were once led astray and slaves to various passions and pleasures, deceived by the idols of this world that demand our hearts and minds' attention. 
We were once passing our days in malice and envy, dominated by wickedness and being discontent because we weren't as successful as the guy next to us, or as popular, or maybe as put together as the other family. We were once hating one another and being hated. I need this reminder. My identity was most certainly wrapped up in envy, and I was a slave to making sure that I fit in. Nothing in my life looked different than the person next to me. I was always competing to appear better than I really was. I was defined by sin, and it reigned over me. Quite honestly, I don't know about you, but I still sin in these very ways today. In fact, I probably checked every single one of those boxes before I walked through those doors this morning. But we're no longer defined by these things. As we'll see in the next few verses, instead, our identity is in Christ and the abundant grace he gladly gives us every single day, which is our motivation and our power to live differently. We are not better than the world. We just have knowledge of the truth. Knowledge of the truth that is available to everyone right here in God's word. Knowledge of the truth that we need to be sharing with those in our circles who are right now where we once were. Remembering who we once were is humbling. It requires us to relinquish ourselves and allow grace, the grace of God to be poured out on us, which has made us fully holy and blameless before a just God. Grace purifies the people of God to relinquish ourselves. As we move along to verses 4 through 8 in the text, we also see that grace purifies the people of God to render good works. Read with me again in verses 4 through 8. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. So that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy. And I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and they're profitable for people. Church, this is good news. Our Savior, our Deliverer, the Restorer of life, God the Son, appeared to make right our relationship with God the Father. He lived here on earth amongst God's people. And he died once for all to save us. Precisely because it was God's intent. He bore the pain and suffering that was due for the sins of the world. Because a payment had to be made. God is just and payment was due. But he knew that we couldn't possibly pay off the debt. We couldn't work our way out of it. No matter how much righteousness all of my, mankind could muster up, it would never satisfy what was due to restore our relationship with the Creator God. So He saved us according to His mercy, withholding from us what we have earned death and eternal separation from God. Jesus, God's own Son, our substitute, gave us new life. 
If you don't know Jesus this morning, I urge you to repent and believe. Put your faith in the only one who is able to save you from sin and death. He will give you new life. The washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit is a beautiful gift from the triune God. New spiritual life and transformation of our hearts and minds to now live in a life that models a holy and blameless Savior to a lost and broken world. But sin still remains, as we know. From the point of conversion to death, the believer can't possibly keep himself clean from sin. It was necessary then for us to be justified, and we were rendered righteous by grace. And now we stand renewed and in right standing with the Father because of the Son. We are also heirs whose whose secure inheritance is eternal life with God. The same grace that purifies the people of God to relinquish ourselves also purifies the people of God to render good works. Verse 8 is really the anchor of this passage. And in light of these gospel truths that we just read, Titus is to insist on these gospel truths. It's worth repeating to God's people. It's worth infusing into the teaching in the Cretan churches. It's worth reminding the people of God because it's the only possible source for living as the people of God. And our flesh, my flesh, your flesh, It will fight it. We need the constant reminder that we have received undeserved favor. We need that reminder. And that we're fully and forever justified before the Father. So that in verse 8, those who have believed in God, those who have put their faith in Christ, believed in God, may be careful to devote themselves to good works. We are to respond in good works, not our own righteousness, not because we have anything to offer and not because it earns us anything, but in response to what we have already received. Rankin Wilborn puts it so well in in his book, Union with Christ. In calling us to be holy, God isn't asking us to make up something lacking in us. We don't obey him from a deficit. We obey at a fullness the goodness, loving kindness, and mercy of God that he bestowed on us and the grace that justifies and transforms our hearts and minds should cause us to want to worship him. Our devotion to good works as our response is an act of worship to the Father, acknowledging his place in our hearts and lives. Not only is God glorified, but people are benefited. As Paul says, these things are profitable for people. An outflow of a heart devoted to good works is walking in obedience to the commands to love others, which of course is profitable for those we interact with, right? Maybe physically or spiritually or emotionally. Profitable for people. In contrast to the sound teaching of the gospel message we just walked through, Paul gives a warning to Titus of what the Cretan people must avoid in verses 9 through 11. We saw how grace purifies the people of God to relinquish ourselves and how grace purifies the people of God 
to render good works. Here, Paul's letter teaches us that grace purifies the people of God to renounce ungodliness. Let's read again in verses 9 through 11. But avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful. He is self-condemned. Remember what one of, the Crete, one of Crete's own prophets said about his own people back in chapter 1, verse 12. A couple weeks ago, uh, we studied this. Uh, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. These things defined the people in Crete. It was ingrained in their culture, and it was poisoning the culture of God's people in the churches on the island as well. Paul exhorts the believers to have nothing to do with these worthless arguments and nothing to do with the unrepentant false teachers who were teaching error and teaching for shameful gain. This teaching and the corresponding lifestyle was destructive to families in the church, and it's equally destructive today. It creates division among God's people, at the least creating strife in relationships but it can easily boil into dissatisfaction, disunity, and destruction of whole churches. It's like when you pour oil into a bottle of water. It separates and the two don't mix, right? This happens in churches. I've experienced it. I've seen it. Maybe some of you have too. When you introduce controversies and quarreling, into the church, it separates people, and it keeps them from growing together as the family of God. It often starts with secondary issues, maybe like the consumption of alcohol by believers. Maybe um, the, the ch if the church should spend money to expand the children's wing. Or maybe if Realm is the right web app for our church, right? We all know that there's opinions about that. I'm not saying we shouldn't talk about these things, right? But in light of teaching the gospel, they should come second or maybe even further down the list. Let's bring it relevant to today. It can't start with, it can start with grumbling about the decisions maybe our leadership team here at Windsor Community Church has made about, um, about how to handle things during the pandemic. The complaining may seem harmless until that grumbling and that dissatisfaction turns into what you talk about with your friends at community group. And then maybe you stop registering for services because of anger towards the decisions. And now you've got a group of people who are clearly dividing themselves from the body because of a simple disagreement or complaint. We have to be more deep-rooted than this families don't divide so easy. We learned together back in the first verse of this letter that the goal of Paul's ministry and his ministry to the people of God in Crete was for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness in hope of eternal life. 
teaching of the truth to strengthen the faith of the believer. Teaching of the truth and responding with godliness is productive for families, for the church, and for the ungodly observers in the world. As Mike put it so well a couple of weeks ago, healthy teaching begets healthy living. This was not evident in the churches in Crete. Hence Paul's instruction, right, to put in order leaders in sound teaching and good works and the truth of the gospel. Paul gives clear instruction in verse 9 of what to avoid. And in verses 10 and 11 for what to do about people who are living and teaching this way. Paul calls out these false teachers back in chapter 1 as members of the circumcision party. They were Judaizers who contended that a Christian must be obedient to the Mosaic law first. This denies the truth that we know that Jesus said himself in his Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, that he came to fulfill the law and that obedience and justification now comes by grace alone, through faith alone under the new covenant. The church is to avoid foolish controversies, speculation about genealogical tales that were pointless, debates and disputes over the law. All of these things are unprofitable and they're worthless, Paul says. They don't grow the faith of the believer. They aren't founded in truth. They don't produce healthy people and healthy churches. They produce bitterness and envy, hatred, and evil speech. All things Paul attributes to our old selves. And they create division. But when these things are prevalent in the church, what are we to do? By God's grace, which purifies us, we are to renounce ungodliness. Knowing who we once were and the restoration we have with the Father because of Jesus' work on the cross, we are to renounce ungodliness for the restoration of the person. Paul says to do this with one warning and then a second warning. Go and confront the person about their sin and the division that they're creating. Kindly and gently warn them. We're not going to spend time digging into this topic either. I probably have six or seven sermons out of this, right? Um, but we're not going to dig into this deeply today. But again, we're going to turn to Scripture. I ask that, uh, that, that you spend some time in Scripture if you're struggling through this, thinking through this, both in Matthew 18 and in 2 Timothy 2, the goal of a warning or rebuke to a brother or sister is restoration. That the person caught in sin may see their sin, acknowledge it, and repent from it, turning away from it and turning towards Jesus. Our passage today in verse 10 says that after warning him to have nothing more to do with him, this assumes restoration was unsuccessful. We don't see the full story there, right? But the person knowingly and willingly continues in sin. He is set on a course of destruction. He's warped, as we see in verse 11. His heart, his mind, and his teaching are perverted. He has received knowledge of the truth and has stubbornly rejected it. Such a person is self-condemned, it says in verse 11. 
by arguing about what the church should or shouldn't be doing on secondary issues and condemning others who don't align with this, their, their own argument, this person is condemning other people. Proclaiming guilt on the people of God who the Father has already declared innocent because of the shed blood of Jesus. If unrepentant toward this sin, what this person is actually doing is condemning himself. Proving he has not received the pardon from Jesus, but actually proving himself guilty. Rooting out this unsound teaching and replacing it with the truth is for the protection of the church, for edification of God's people, so that for the sake of their faith they may grow in the knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness. Paul ends his letter to Titus with some travel plans and a reminder and a final greeting in verses 12 through 15, if you'll read with me. When I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, do your best to come to me at Nicopolis, for I have decided to spend the winter there. Do your best to speed Zenos, the lawyer, and Apollos on their way. See that they lack nothing, and let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. All who are with me send greetings to you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. Paul asks Titus to come to him in Nicopolis, which was on the western coast of Greece. We know from other interactions between Paul and Titus in Scripture that Titus had brought great comfort to Paul in 2 Corinthians. He would not permanently remain on the island with the churches in Crete, but likely be of service to Paul in other churches, in other cities. To replace Titus, Paul was sending backup in Artemis, who isn't mentioned elsewhere in Scripture, um, or Tychicus, who we know served with Paul and was sent to other churches to encourage uh, believers' hearts. Paul also asks Titus to care for Zenos and Apollos, um, actually likely the deliverers of this letter to Titus, and ensure that they had everything that they needed to continue on their journey, an act of kindness and love toward his brothers practical application for Titus, right? From what Paul had just got done imploring him and the people of God to do. And then in verse 14, Paul gives one last reminder of the importance for believers to learn to devote themselves to good works. Take what has been taught in this letter, and in the knowledge of the truth, go and live accordingly. Go and meet the pressing needs of others, like Zenos and Apollos, if you live purified by grace, and you are healthy, you will bear fruit. Second Peter 1.8 says, For if these qualities are yours and increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. In closing, Christian, you are to bear fruit. Healthy people with the Holy Spirit working through them living a life devoted to good works, motivated by the gospel and empowered by grace, bear fruit. Healthy people bear fruit. As a reminder, God's word revealed to us this morning that grace is the source for living this way, for living as people of God. And grace purifies the people of God to relinquish ourselves, to render good works and to renounce ungodliness. 
if you profess faith in Christ, is grace the source for your living as a child of God? Are you submitting to the Spirit's reign in your heart, allowing grace to purify you? Are you relinquishing yourself? Are you rendering good works? Are you renouncing ungodliness to protect the truth? When you live this way, you present Christ to the world. If you're not in a relationship with Jesus, and you've not put your faith and hope in him, hear me this morning. Grace is the source for living. You are dead in your sins, and there is no amount of good that you can do to pump life into your soul. Faith in Jesus is the only solution. And those who put their faith in him have new life, a life that is pure and undefiled despite the presence of sin, a life that is pleasing to God and can be loving towards others by grace and by grace alone. I was dead in my sins. I was dead in finding my identity in being someone that I wasn't. But God rescued me from myself. I'm imperfect and sometimes find myself not devoted to good works. Probably oftentimes. And instead, I'm distracted. I'm impatient. I'm disobedient. I'm proud. And the list goes on. At the end of the day, with a text just like this, I'm reminded that I'm justified by grace. You are justified by grace. God didn't save anyone because they deserved it. He saved us because of his goodness and because of his mercy. Praise be to God for his great grace. Amen. Would you pray with me? Uh, Gracious Heavenly Father God, just grateful uh, again for the truth of the gospel, for your intent to send Jesus to the earth, to walk amongst your people. God, with with his eyes towards the cross, towards the shed blood that was due for sin. God, we're so thankful that that payment for sin is completely satisfied in your son. And God, that we have new life in him. God, we're thankful now that we can live every day with renewed grace because of your mercy. God, a grace that is so abundant. God, we are sinners in need of a savior, in need of grace. God, we just ask that you use your grace to humble us, God, to walk in a way that is loving towards you and loving towards others, and God, in, in, in protecting the knowledge of the truth, protecting truth in this church. God, would you use these people this morning to go out and live that way by your grace? God, we love you and we praise you. In your son Jesus' name, amen.